Welcome to this week's podcast. Today, we are focusing on apologetics and a number of my friends will be answering very important questions that many of us have. I hope you will find this helpful and inspiring. Professor John Lennox, you know, many of our viewers um, are in the workplace yes. and they're relating to colleagues and neighbours and family and friends and they're trying to engage them um, about the gospel, about Christianity. And uh, one of the, the biggest hindrances I think many of us Christians find is how can we believe in a God of love if there is so much suffering in the world? How do you answer that question? Well, that's the hardest question we face, the absolutely hardest question. And my first response to it is to say, I have no simplistic answer to that question. I don't even like to talk in terms of answer, but I think there's a way into it. There's a way of thinking about it that can bring peace to many people. Now, this is complicated. And it's one of the reasons I wrote my little book, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? Because it, that, that has raised this question acutely for many, many people. And many of my friends whom I respect, I understand why people become atheists. You know, I've been to Auschwitz quite a few times and I've never not wept there. Yeah, likewise, the, this I is, did too. This is the hard, gut-wrenching problem. But let's look at it then. First of all, there are two sources for pain and evil. There's what we call moral evil, the bad things people do to each other. And then there's what we sometimes call natural evil, which is a strange thing. And, and that is things like coronavirus, tsunamis, earthquakes, cancers, all this kind of thing, where as far as we know, human beings aren't directly involved. And that can be the more difficult problem. But secondly, and this is where my heart goes out to people, there are two viewpoints. It's one thing to be an oncologist treating a patient. It's another thing to be a 24-year-old mother who's just been told she's got an inoperable tumour. There's the inner perspective of the sufferer and there's the outward perception of the observer. And we got to deal with both. And the kind of questions that both of those sides raise can be very different. Now, the observers will ask the intellectual questions. How can you possibly reconcile this with the good God? But then I want to say, so you're an atheist then? Absolutely. I, I've given up on God. Many people have sat and told me straight, I've given up on God when I heard these various things. I said, it's evil, isn't it? Yes, it's absolute evil. Where do you get your concept of evil from? Yeah. Because look, uh, one of your fellow atheists is a man called Richard Dawkins. And he follows the atheism down and he comes to the conclusion, this universe is just as you'd expect it to be. If at bottom there's no good, no evil, no justice, DNA just is and we dance to its music. But I said, look, I'm puzzled. 
if there is no good and no evil, why are you talking about problem of evil? You've actually got rid of moral concepts. Now I said that bothers me because I find myself to be a moral being. So does Dawkins actually. I find my heart crying for justice. Are you really telling me there's no justice? Now, you will respond to me, but you believe in God. How can you possibly do that? Well, let's come to that in a minute. But it seems to me it's no solution getting rid of the very concept that you're using to judge the problem. Secondly, on the atheist side, you think you've got rid of the problem. That's just the way the universe is. Let's face it. Get real. But you have got rid of something. You've got rid of all hope. Atheism is a hopeless faith. And I say that to people directly. It is hope. You have no hope to offer to that young woman of 24 with a tumour. Absolute none. So that's a dead end. Atheism doesn't work. It gives you a kind of temporary satisfaction, but in the end you have no hope. You have defined it out of existence conceptually, and you've no actual hope because there's no life after death. Now, I'm a Christian. How do I begin to square it? Mm. And I say, well, at the heart, and this is coming right to the heart of it directly. It depends on the person, of course, you want to engage gently with because people are hurting, their nerves are raw, they've lost a relative and all that. But I say, you know that at the heart of Christianity, there's a cross. That is suffering and extreme pain. Now, try and come with me, if you will. I know you might find this very difficult to accept, but the Christian claim is that the person on the cross was God incarnate. So if that is true, and just come with me, if that is true, we can legitimately ask, what is God doing on a cross, if I might put it that way? And surely, doesn't it show you that If that is so, then God has not remained distant from the problem of suffering, but has himself become part of it. Now, I think that's the beginning of a step, but it's not the final step. If God is like that, where can we find hope? Well, the next step is, the next big Christian claim is that God by his power raised Jesus from the dead. So that death is not the end. That changes my whole universe. That changes everything. Because if that's true, it means that there is hope beyond the grave. And sometimes I risk telling them a personal experience. I say, you know, my sister had a 22-year-old daughter just married to a youth pastor in a church and she got a brain tumour that killed her. She held on to her faith in Christ. How did she possibly do that? It was a traumatic period for my sister and it took a long time to manage to come to terms, but she hasn't lost her faith either. Why? Because Jesus brings hope. He doesn't guarantee a release from the physical process of death, but what he does guarantee is a salvation that transcends COVID, transcends brain tumours, transcends death. Now, atheism can't offer anything like that. It doesn't mean we don't suffer, we don't have pain, but it means that we have a way in. So I don't give an answer, but 
I like to point people towards a person who I believe is the answer. That was Jay John talking to John Lennox. Next, let's hear from Sharon Dirricks. And of course, there's the very fascinating topic of near-death experiences, where people who are in a state of reversible clinical death that report being conscious. Now, you write about that and you've looked into that. What did you discover as you researched that area? I discovered that it is a lot more rigorous than people think. It's not just anecdotal evidence. What, what happened, um, it's, it's a data set that's only arise, arisen since we've been able to kind of have people in that state of clinical death, since we've had cardiac surgery and neurological surgery, where people have to be cooled to a very low temperature, their brain EEG signal is, uh, you know, it's, there isn't any detectable signal and their heart rate, their heart is stopped and they're in a state in order for this surgery to be performed. And what surgeons used to hear was that their, some of their patients were reporting upon resuscitation that they had been conscious. And so that caused some surgeons to collect some um, systematic data across all of their patient groups. And there are studies from different, um, different countries capturing this. There's a lot of books out there on it. Um, and they see roughly seven to ten percent of, of patients reporting very interesting facts that it would be hard to have just made up so um, what what kind of facts are they reporting things like um re being able to fully recount a conversation that had happened down the corridor in a different room in the hospital about the person that was on their deathbed to the extent it was a little bit awkward because the content of the conversation wasn't wasn't good but the patient on res upon resuscitation recounted it to their relatives. Um, other things like somebody observing a um, slightly random tennis shoe on a roof in another part of the hospital entirely that you could never have known about and the staff didn't know about because it's inaccessible, you can't climb up there. Um, another observation about a woman who was congenital congenitally blind in her, um, in her lifetime who then, um, upon resuscitation, recounted the appearance of someone else who had also died moments earlier that she couldn't have known about. All sorts of extraordinary things that just give us pause for thought to say, human beings are really interesting. And even if some of these may have been fabricated, who knows? But even if one of these is a genuine yes. instance... But they couldn't have been fabricated because, like the tennis shoe, right. there's no way. Right, right. But and even if all of them were except for one, for example, that, that still shows that you are way more than just your brain because if your brain is clinically dead and you are still conscious, then you can't simply be your brain. There must be more to it. And next up, Jay John's talking to Simon Edwards. So having spent time, Simon, obviously looking at all the objections to the Christian faith, mm. and some of them are very challenging and complex, not easy to answer. Mm. Um, you are utterly convinced uh, that Christian faith makes sense today. Absolutely. Just think about this. We live in a, in a world um, that is remarkable. Um, there could have been nothing, yet there's something. And the something that we have uh, is incredible. There's the, the fact that right now um, the, the world is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour and, and, and moving through space at 67,000 miles an hour, all these things are happening, right? 
for us to be alive. Um, we don't ask to be born into the world and yet here we are just thinking, feeling, wondering, imagining beings with consciousness, imagination. We've got music and mathematics and, and we're, we're all searching for meaning and significance. What makes sense of all this? And it's not just Christian faith that's on trial. And this is something that Christians often don't realize. You, you feel like as a Christian, you're the one with this crazy uh, supernatural worldview uh, that the reasonable uh, people who don't go to church want you to try to make sense of how can you have this crazy view, where in fact, every worldview is on trial. Every worldview is called to give an account of how it best explains this marvelous world around us, as well as the marvelous world within us. And having investigated all the other alternatives available, I'm convinced that Christian faith makes far and away the best sense uh, of the world around us and the world within us, whether you're looking through the lens of science or history or philosophy or psychology. And then in addition to all that, I think the most uh, marvelous piece of evidence of all, if I can call it a piece of evidence, is encountering the living Lord Jesus Christ. For me, it was when I was reading the Bible, it wasn't just that I was learning words and concepts. I was encountering a person. I was encountering Jesus. And for me, it was that experience of encountering him in the process of working out all these other things. Like, does the evidence stack up? He was the most powerful and compelling piece of evidence of all. Here's Jay John talking with Amy or Ewing. So the question of the book, Amy, where is God? in all the suffering. Yeah. So where is God? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so obviously I'm taking a whole book to, um, to, to, to answer that. I think I probably want to draw out two key things. Yes. One would be to say that even our rage, when we raise the question of suffering, so one of the stories I tell is standing um, at the foot of Grenfell Tower two yeah. days after the fire and we're there with this community who are in grief and Psalm 147 is read out, God is close to the brokenhearted, next verse is read out, next verse, verse six, the wicked he will cast to the ground. Okay, during that Bible reading, the whole crowd erupt into applause. They start clapping the idea that there might be a God who will do something about the injustice of this world. Yes. Now, what worldview is able to account for that? Can evolution, the survival of the fittest, we're just here by chance, and you and I are just the stuff of our physical bodies. All you are is the biochemistry of your body. Does that idea account for why we feel as we do when children burn to death yeah. in a fire? I don't think it does. Does karma account for it? You get what you deserve in this life. So if somebody is burned in a fire, they did something to deserve it in this life or a previous life. I don't think that can account for how we um, experience suffering in the world. Only the idea that a loving God has made this world and he's created human beings in his image, the sacredness of human life, only that can account for how we feel about suffering, our cry for justice. Yes. So where is God in all the suffering? His image is on you and it's on me and it's on every person who's suffered and that's why suffering hurts and that's why it matters because people matter. So that's the first thing I'd say. There's a sort of, ex like an explanation that 
is in our DNA as to how we feel about suffering because God is imprinted in us and on us, a loving God. And then secondly, where is God in our suffering? Well, actually, the Bible doesn't speak of a God who observes suffering and kind of empathises with us and feels really sad for us from a distance. But God in Jesus willingly suffers himself. He takes sin and death and suffering into himself. So it is now an experience that God himself is prepared to go through. So at the cross, we see this beautiful portrait, a demonstration, the Bible says, of the love of God that, that is him suffering. So he's in it with us. And then, of course, there's a future hope too. But um, yeah, that that's the beginning of That's the answer. The be- I know. <laughs> Next, J. John will be talking to Alistair McGrath and then Andy Bannister. You obviously are convinced that science and faith are compatible, with some people often say they're not compatible. That was what I thought when I was 16, that in effect, uh, science and religion were incompatible. Now, they are different. Let's agree on that. But here I quote Albert Einstein, who's my favourite scientist, I think. Einstein said, look, um, in life we have science, we have ethics, we have religion, we have politics. They're different, but they all matter. And really the challenge is to see how each of these builds up to give us an overall picture of things. Each is part of a greater whole. I think that's a key thing. They're different, yes, but they're part of this bigger picture. And we need them all if we're going to lead a meaningful life. So I do not see science and religions being incompatible. And um, basically they're different and they illuminate different parts of the landscape of life. Andy Bannister, welcome. John, it's great to be with you, thank you. We have Jesus who went to the cross, yes. suffered, understands about suffering, but raises the question, well, why? Why did Jesus actually have to die? Yeah, great question, right? And to go, the first thing, of course, we can, I would say straight away to folks on that is going, there clearly has to be a really good reason because if Jesus simply died because he, because God, God wanted to show he loves us, that's actually seriously messed up. You know, if I, uh, if I throw myself in front of a bus on Valentine's Day and leave my wife a note saying, look how much I love you, I think her response with the grief would have been next time like a box of chocolates would have been fine. You know, you don't just randomly give your life away. So the very fact that that is the only thing that was possible to, to achieve our sure. salvation, I think to me tells us how great the, the problem was, is the first thing. Secondly, of course, is if you unpack the, the scriptures, and one of the greatest privileges, I think, is sitting down with someone who's searching and go through this, uh, to be able to take the time to read the Bible with them, is that you know the Bible time and time again doesn't run away, does it, from diagnosing the issue that sin is a real thing. It is a real issue that has really separated us from God and something needs to be done to deal uh, with that. And we're really forced with, a, with two possibilities here, aren't we? We either stand before God and go, well, we're going to deal with our brokenness and our mess up and our scrubs and our own, bring it on, which is a terrifying position to be in standing before the God of the universe. Or we have in the person Jesus, somebody, the only sinless one, who is willing to say, well, I'll take that burden on for you. That was Jay John talking to Andy Bannister. And now we're back with Sharon Dirks as she answers another great question. We're encouraged, Sharon, to love God with all of our mind, our heart. When we say heart, what does that mean? Yeah, this is a, a great question. I think that the way that heart is used in, in, in the 
in the Bible is a little bit how soul is used actually and mind and that that um, quote from Deuteronomy in the words of Jesus is actually really talking about the sort of an inner reality when I said there's something that it's like to be you there's a you that can't be captured physically there's a there is more when, when we talk about worshipping God with all of our heart, we're not referring to a particular bit of us that we can segment and put off to the side and say that's different from this. It's actually a measure of extent. When you worship God or follow him with all of your heart, that's, that's a measure of degree, not anatomy or philosophy even. That's like, I'm giving it everything. I'm giving God all of me. And now we're going to hear from J. John as he talks with Mike Beaumont. Jesus came into the world Mike to give his life and um, that beautiful verse in John 3:16, for God so loved the world he gave his only son so whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life he gave his life why did he give his life huh. it is incredible isn't it um, but the gospels reveal to us something of what was going on there. You see, when, when human beings started turning away from God that we looked at in one of our previous episodes that we've talked about, and at that moment, sin came in. A bit of a religious word, isn't it? But it's people doing stuff their own sure. way and finding it doesn't work. And, and sin came in and not only spoiled their life, it actually started to form a barrier between them and God. It was a block. God's, uh, the Bible tells us God is a holy God. He, he can't, can't bear to look at sin. And that's hard for us to grasp sometimes because, you, know, you know, we can shrug our shoulders about things that go wrong. But God can't. He's so morally pure. He, he can't bear to look on sin and evil and stuff that goes wrong. But God loves us incredibly. So here are human beings who ought to fix their sin but can't. And here is God who can fix human sin, but it would be a bit unfair if he did. And so God says, I have a plan. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that mystery of the Trinity in heaven, agree together that the Son will come to earth, not as some sort of Clark Kent, Superman, still God, but pretending to be a man until he rips his shirt off and reveals who he is underneath. Now, the Bible tells us through the mystery of the incarnation and the virgin birth, God truly, fully, completely, absolutely became a real, perfect human being. Shows us how to live, shows us how to respond to God, models life for us, but more than that, as the perfect human being, can now go to the cross to pay the price for sin. The one who hadn't sinned, whose sheet was clean, says, I'll go instead of you, John. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. It yes. leads to death. Yes. And because of your sin, John, Mike, death's all that can follow. But Jesus said, you know what? Death has no hold on me because there's been no sin, but I'll, I'll go in your place. And so we get this picture in the New Testament of Jesus dying in our place as our substitute. You know, I think anyone who 
follows sport or football or anything understands the concept of a substitute. You know, one player just can't carry on any longer and the manager calls him off, holds his board up and the other one goes on in his place because mm. he's fit and can do it. And Jesus was the perfect son of God, the lamb of God, God's offering for us. Absolutely sinless. Satan and sin had no hold on him, but he gives his life in place of us. So that as we put our trust in him, the benefits that he won through that death, life forevermore, can be ours, not his. He didn't need it and he gives it to you and me as we simply believe. And it was God himself who did this for us. Wow. That was Jay John talking to Mike Beaumont. And now let's hear from John Lennox again as he talks with Jay John. A lot of people, John, have misunderstandings as to what does it actually mean to be a Christian. How would you explain that? What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is a person who enjoys now a real relationship with God through Christ, through trusting him that he or she has not merited. And this is one of the huge confusions of our day. They think of Christianity as a religion. And if you ask them, what is a religion? They'll say a religion is a path. You try and follow it. And you hope that when you get to the judgment, you'll have done enough for God to accept you. That's religion. Well, if it is religion, that's not Christianity. Christianity turns that on its head. It's utterly revolutionary because it tells me that I can't make it that way. I can't earn God's forgiveness. But God has done something in Christ on the cross, the resurrection, that he can offer me forgiveness as a free gift on the basis of my trusting him and giving my life to him. I cannot merit it. And you know, <laughs> I often explain it this way. I say, you know, we ought to understand this. We live in a merit-based society. Universities, you get a degree, but you're not guaranteed one because it depends on your merit, everywhere merit, promotion merit, all this kind of thing. So we think that we can merit God and a relationship with him, but just a minute. What about marriage? And I sometimes say, jokingly, I say, you know, I met a, a young lady when I went to Cambridge and I thought she'd make a good wife. So I, I brought her a cookbook and I said to her, you know, do you see this cookbook? There are various laws on how you make apple cake. I like apple cake. So if you keep these rules um, pretty well, pretty nearly 100% for the next 40 years, I'll accept you. Otherwise, you can go back to your mother. And, you know, audiences roar at this. Of course. They absolutely roar. And I say, why are you laughing? Isn't that exactly your attitude towards God? You wouldn't insult a fellow human being mm. by telling them that your acceptance of them depends on their performance. But that's exactly what you're basing a relationship with God on. You've been listening to The J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. If you could ask God anything, what would you ask?
Life is full of big questions. In his brand new book, Will I Be Fat in Heaven? and Other Curious Questions, J. John answers 38 questions that we ask about God, the Bible, the world, and everything in between. How can God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit be one? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Will we recognize family and friends in heaven? And life's ultimate question, does God care about me? Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com.